Hey, I'm Bruce Weinstein, and this is the podcast Cooking with Bruce and Mark. And I'm Mark Scarborough, and together, Bruce and I have written three dozen cookbooks, including the Instant Air Fryer Bible, our latest, which is out this October, October of 2022. You want that if you've got an Instant Brand Vortex or Omni Air Fryer, as well as what is still Bruce's favorite cookbook, the Ultimate Cookbook (laughs) 9 100 recipes, the great compendium that Bruce claims represents most of any cookbook we've ever written, how he, in fact, cooks the ultimate cookbook. But we're talking today about the problems of eating well while you live rurally. We're going to talk about our one-minute cooking tip. Bruce has got a great interview coming up. And as always, we'll talk about what's making us happy in food this week. So let's start out. Mark and I moved to rural New England 16 years ago, and it has really had quite an impact on the way... 16 years. 16 years without takeout. 16 (laughs) years. By the way, we've missed the entire Uber Eats and DoorDash revolution. We don't even know what you're talking about. If you open them up at our house, there's nothing, because literally the nearest supermarket is about 17 miles away mm-hmm. and that's through back roads we live out in the woods i don't think many people know this and so before we do this thing about eating well while living rurally um, let me and i know it seems contradictory to what you might think because you think well oh my gosh you live with all these farmers well kind of we'll talk about that in a minute but um i don't think a lot of people know this but the east coast the settlement patterns were that all these settlers came in and established the coastal cities you know boston providence um new haven New York, Philadelphia, Baltimore, Washington, D.C., right? All of this, well, Washington, D.C. is its own thing. But anyway, all these coastal cities along the coast. And then the settlement patterns were south and west of there. And I don't think most people realize that New England is super rural. And we live in New England. And trust me, uh, when we want takeout pizza, when we want to order a pizza, it's an hour for me to drive to the pizza parlor and get it and bring it back home. Yeah, there's a reason why when you go through parts of Massachusetts, the signs say thickly settled. Because <laughs> where we that, live yeah. in a nearby state, it is not thickly settled. That just cracks me up that they still use the words thickly settled we have for, our town, for Boston. <laughs> our town is a huge, huge square acre to square mile town yep. in our county. Yep. And yet there's only 1,300 residents. Yep. It's it's really tiny. And the town next to us is twice the size of our town and has just about, that's just a few yeah. more residents than we do. It's very, very rural. So what happened? We moved from the middle of Manhattan where I had a supermarket inside our apartment building right downstairs. <laughs> a two-block walk away, I had a Whole Foods. I had, Which meant that before dinner parties, Bruce would go, oh, no, I don't have ice. And he would run downstairs 10 minutes before <laughs> people arrived and buy a bag of ice at the supermarket. Because when you live in Manhattan with a tiny freezer and mm. it's an old refrigerator, mm. you buy ice. Mm-hmm. That's the way it goes. You mm. just buy ice. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we had a figure out, we had a plan. What were we going to do knowing that we write cookbooks for a living? And back in the day, we wrote magazine articles and mm. lots of recipe testing. Yeah, remember going magazines? On. I remember how those existed once. <laughs> <laughs> so long eating well. So long cooking light. Bye. See ya. <laughs> Bye. 
<laughs> so we knew that UPS and FedEx delivered to where we were moving. Amazon was already up and going, and we knew we could get some stuff. We knew Zabars would deliver, and there were a couple of Chinese markets in New York that delivered. But when you're used to having all those supermarkets and all that stuff so close to you, you have to rethink. And we said, okay, we're moving to the country. What are we going to do? Right. And so one of the things, of course, you do if you want to eat well when you live rurally is you want to explore. You do want to explore local farms. And we got ourselves associated with a CSA back Explain in the day. Explain what that is. Community-supported agriculture. Back in the day when CSAs were big, you bought shares in a farm and you got a giant box of produce, which is really a ton of greens, leafy greens, <laughs> more leafy greens. Than and you'd you often pick it yourself. Ever, I mean, yeah. We'd uh, go out to the strawberry... Uh, uh, vines and the raspberry ricks and pick all that ourselves. Anyway, so we bought shares in a farm and that went for a while, but y you probably know this. CSAs are bad business models and Chubby Bunny, that was our CSA, our beloved CSA did go under and many CSAs across the United States have gone under. It's a very hard model of business to sustain, but there are other ways to do it. I mean, it's about uh, let's say 20 minutes from our house is a mm, small town uh, it's a failed industrial town or a collapsed old industrial town. It used to be full of chair factories and desk factories. Yeah, it was a milling town. It was a milling town, mm -hmm. yeah. Anyway, but they have a health food store there. The Rooted Market is a fabulous place. They carry lots of, you know, Bob's Red Mill stuff. It's an easy place to get things. But there, there are other local farms around us, too. Well, when we first moved here, we drove everywhere to find these local farms. And one of the first ones we went to was a grass-fed bison farm um, out in Brooklyn, Connecticut. Now, it's true. That was a two-hour drive, so it's hardly local to us. But then we found a great farm, Whippoorwill. That's mm. in Salisbury, Connecticut. Mm. And they would, beef farm, and they also have pigs, and sometimes they had chickens. Now I think they just do the chickens for the eggs, and they had wonderful stuff. We found stuff. Cream Hill Veal, which was a local veal farm. They've actually mm -hmm. gone out of business, which is very sad. People can't, people don't want the veal, but anyway. oh, he'd be at our farmers market every week. He'd be at our local farmers market, sitting there in the corner of the farmer market, all lonely. No one would uh, go up to him. And their business model, and I should just tell you, if you don't know this, maybe this is something you can learn. Uh, people are very opposed to eating veal. Okay, I understand. And I understand the ethical problems of eating veal. And we are not here talking about the old French veal where the little calf was kept in a pin and it couldn't move and the meat never got any hemoglobin in it. So it was pure white and yada, yada, yada. We're not talking about that. We're talking about pastured veal, which means calves running around a pasture. But the whole deal here is if you eat any dairy, you support the veal industry because where do you think those calves go? I mean, the cows have calves particularly male calves, where do you think they go? The dairy doesn't need any male calves at all. They're either slaughtered or they go to veal farms. That's right. They either go to dog food or they go to veal yeah. farms. And this farm, this, we have a lot of dairy farms around us, and Cream Hill Veal went around buying up the baby males, putting them out to pasture, letting them live around in the pasture for nine months, eight months, six months, along in there. I don't know exactly when they slaughtered. Probably earlier than nine months, right? Probably yes. about four or five months. But anyway, the, the calves lived outside, and then they slaughtered them, and the veal was 
delicious. But it, it looked almost like beef. It right, had it was a red, pink. It, yeah, it yeah. was. It, was a, it looked like a dark pork. Yeah. But that's, you know. So we found them. We found Howling Flats, another fabulous farm in Canaan. And Kelly, who runs that, has been on this podcast. And I've interviewed her. Right. And she's talked about raising all of her animals. And it's a great place. So you want to look for your local farms. And this is how rural we are. We have one local farm stand that we frequent a lot. And they do close it. You know, I mean, and they do close on Sundays sometimes and on holidays and all that stuff. But this kills me. Um, this is how rural we are. They don't lock their door. And the answer to the locals is if you need anything, just come in and leave the money on the counter. Take it. I'm still, I've, you know, we've been here 15 years and they told me I could do it from day one. And I'm still afraid to be no. walking around there with a flashlight no. and then have the cop cops. We don't have a cop. Yeah, there are town. no cops. <laughs> our town does not have, not only does our our town not have any stoplights. We have not a, even a single stoplight. We have no police force in our town, so there are no cops. But I'd still be afraid that maybe the farmer with his shotgun would be trawling around looking at who's in there with a flashlight. Anyway, we didn't do that. But but the point the point of all of this is uh, that we have learned some tips. And even if you live in an urban area, these are great tips to not find yourself in a constant need for food. And one of our tips is, and maybe this is self-evident to you, but it is plan ahead. Mm, I know that's so, it seems so obvious, but I hate it when I'm in that need to run to the store moment because I forgot lemons and it's 20 minutes each way no, plus the shopping and a couple gallons of gas all because I was making lemon tarts for dessert and I forgot to buy lemons. Right. So make a list. Make sure you look at your list. Mark and I were shopping two weeks ago and this has happened. And I was making lemon tarts for dessert and we had a list and I needed lemons and we got home and what did I say to him? What did I say to you? When we got well, home? Yeah, you, no lemons. No lemons. It, the, it is really important to plan ahead. And if you, you know, especially if I assume that you have a smartphone, because I assume that you're more urban than we are. We have smartphones, but I think we're the only people on our entire road who have <laughs> smartphones. Um, if you have a smartphone, I think that, you know, you can keep a list on there and okay. it makes it super easy just constantly to update that list and keep it rolling do plan ahead and two let me just say that if you especially if you have of course as we do you live in new england and have a subaru of course they don't even let you into new england if you don't have a Subaru. if of course you no, we are not being paid by the Subaru Corporation of, of America. Course. Anyway, it's, there's Subarus everywhere. You, <laughs> It's New England and Australia, actually. Okay, They're fine. really big in Australia. If you have a Subaru uh, uh, hatchback like we do or a station wagon or you have an SUV, listen, honestly, put a little cooler in your car. Or a big cooler. Yeah, or a big cooler. But we keep a little cooler in our car. And that way, at any given moment, we can throw something in there that we find – if you go to the store tonight and you're going to pick up dinner and you're even going to buy prepared foods, but you see that the chicken breasts are on sale as you walk by with your prepared salad from the prepared food counter, think, oh, look, I can get those because I got a little cooler in my car. And also, you know, we sometimes go out exploring. We're just, or we go out for a drive or we just want to take the dogs for a walk in a state park. 
And on the way back, you know, we will stumble across some odd farm stand we didn't know or some beef farm or I don't know what to call these places, fermentariums, oh. places that ferment Boy. kimchi and sauerkraut. Oh. They exist all I over New that's England. that's my septic field is <laughs> the fermentarium. So when you're out exploring, you find these things. You have a cooler. You know you can yeah. bring them and get them home. I think that's true. And if you have the room, and this is something that has indeed changed our lives, if you have the room, we can't recommend more a chest freezer. Um, I know that they seem insane to buy, and you don't have to buy ones that can fit a Spanish galleon the way we have one that, oh, have, that can fit a Spanish. We could fit half a galleon. Oh, okay. <laughs> anyway, you don't have to get the giant ones that can fit half of a of a herd of beef in it. Okay, but. when we got ours, though, the guy <laughs> delivered it. He ordered it from Sears Online, right? And mm. the guy's bringing it, and it's in an unfinished storage room part of the basement. So they bring it around the back door through Mark's office in the finished part of the basement all the way to the other side. He had them set it up in the corner of this storage room, and I go, this is great. No one will hear the screams from here. <gasps> and the look on those two guys... <laughs> <laughs> it was oh, brilliant. Jeez, good thing our town doesn't have a policeman. Um, anyway, you can buy small chest freezers. You don't have. Don't think that just because we say chest freezer, there's big ones. There are actually small yeah. uh, chest freezers out there. There are ones that actually I saw one in doing a little research for this podcast and thinking about this kind of thing. And I Bruce told me we we're going to talk about chest freezers. I actually saw one that can fit under a counter, and I mean like fit in. Like if you put a plug inside your counters with doors on them under uh, uh, near your sink or beside your sink. There are actually chest freezers that are small enough that they'll fit in there and they have a front opening door. So you could fit like four chickens or five chickens. Yeah, but okay, but it's another freezer. It's exactly right. A chest freezer is an amazing thing to have. And finally, we'd say that, you know, anymore, that when you go out, take out, drive home, and it, you should always think about ordering more food than you need. Even if you order DoorDash or Uber Eats. Get I'm, more. You're right. right. I, you know, my mom lives by herself. She's almost 90. Um, she lives by herself in an apartment. And I send her food through Uber Eats. And I have to say, she'll say to me, oh, I want tacos tonight. And so I'll order her tacos, something that she necessarily wouldn't make on her own. And I always send her six to eight tacos. Why? I know my mom, my 90-year-old mom is not going to eat She's going to eat one taco. One and maybe one and a half. She'll eat one and then maybe a half later at night while she's watching TV. But that way she has tacos ahead for the days ahead so even when we go out or mark drives out the 35 minutes to get the pizza we'll get two or we'll get three and i could wrap them we could put them in the freezer in our big chest freezer if you don't have that big a chest freezer wrap up individual pieces it's nice to have pizza in the freezer and you could pop it in your air fryer and just reheat it that way Okay, before we get to our one-minute cookie tick, let me just say that if you enjoy this podcast at all, we would appreciate it if you would subscribe to the podcast. If you subscribe to it on Apple or Google or Amazon or iHeartRadio or wherever you're hearing this podcast, we would appreciate a subscription. And we would also appreciate a comment. Drop a comment down on the Apple podcast pages. We see from our analytics that almost 90% of our listeners come through Apple Podcasts. So mm. drop down there and write a comment. That would do us a world of good, and we would thank you eternally for that. Up next, our segment two, our patented <laughs> one-minute cooking tip. What's our one-minute cooking tip this time? Buy more than one kitchen timer. Oh, God, please do. You should have two. You should have three. And here's the real tip. 
buy different ones, right? They shouldn't all look the same. Buy a green one, buy a red one. Mm -hmm. So if you've got a roast mm -hmm. in the oven that's got mm -hmm. a timer, mm -hmm. and then you've got potatoes on the stove that has a timer, mm -hmm. and then you're blanching green beans for two minutes, you need a timer. If they're all different colors, you'll remember instantly which was which. Because there was a time when I had three white timers going, and there were three different things, and I didn't remember what they were. So you have different colors. You can even write down on your recipes, and you know, this is the red timer. This is the green timer. This is the yellow timer. Yeah, I think even two timers are great. Hmm, two timers. Even <laughs> two timers are great for breakfast. Wow, that, that, that sounds two like... Two timers are great for breakfast. That sounds like a porn movie. <laughs> okay, I think even two timers are great for bre <laughs> breakfast because one can um, handle, uh, let's say, whatever you've got in the oven baking, even biscuits or um, uh, something like that, and the other can handle something else. Poached eggs. On top of the stove. That's really great. Okay. Up next, Bruce's interview with Maria Provenzano. Oh, I like the way that I've suddenly given her a very Italian name, Maria Provenzano. It must be from my Dante podcast. I can't help myself with the Italian. She's the author of Everyday Celebrations from Scratch. She's going to talk to us about how to make food celebrations a part of your everyday life. Can't wait. Today, we have a real treat. I'm speaking with Maria Provenzano the creative force behind From Scratch with Maria.com and the author of the brand new book, Everyday Celebrations from Scratch. Hey, Maria. Hello there. Thank you so much for having me. It feels like a celebration to be here with you. I love the way you look for even the smallest things to celebrate. It's so lovely. And that's what your book's all about. It also means we have to have some celebration ingredients on hand at all time. So what are some of your go-to items that you always keep on hand? So one of the things that I always have in my fridge is a bottle of bubbly. I'm a, I love Prosecco. I'm an Italian girl. So I always have that around. But truthfully, I have kids, so sometimes we want to be celebratory with them. So even the non-alcoholic bubbly, the apple juice that is bubbly is like the best thing to have around. Having anything with bubbles and you put it in a pretty glass, even for the kids, it instantly sparks a celebration and just feels so, so joyful too. And, um, you know, something else, because for me, the table is really important. Uh, some of my greatest memories of my childhood are centered around the table. I grew up in a big Italian family and we were always at my grandpa's house with all of my cousins and hours and hours and hours around the table. So for me, it's sacred. And to sort of elevate the everyday table, I love adding something something as simple as candles, but actual candles. If you have little ones around, you can you know use the battery powered ones too. But I started incorporating just real candles into the table. And when I'm sitting there with family, it just feels so, so special. And so I really encourage you to try it because it's like that flicker of the, the fire that you, that sort of like, you know, elevates it. Right. And, um, you know, we don't do this enough, but we need some confetti in our life. In my book, I have three ways to make homemade confetti three. So you have no excuse. You can make some confetti and you can have it around too. And this kind of leads me into the, the table aspect as well that we talked about is having just some white table linens. They're simple, they're basic, and the reason why they are elevated is because they're a great blank canvas. So you you know put your candles on there, you put your confetti on there, and boom, you have your everyday celebration all figured out. And uh, and then it comes to the meal. So for me, like I said, I'm an Italian girl, so one of my favorite things to eat is pasta 
with marinara sauce and pesto. Pesto and marinara sauce freeze beautifully. Also two recipes that are in the book. And then lastly, one of the things that like, if you were to ask my mom what home smells like, it's fresh chocolate chip cookies. And for me, I always have chocolate chip cookie dough in the freezer. And I have to have it in the freezer because my husband eats the little cookie dough balls. And I have to go in there and check. I'm like, these are supposed to be saved. <laughs> so I have to make them. I make cookie dough probably once a week because he goes through it. And uh, but then those, so those are my things that you can really do for celebration prep that you can have at a drop out of, of a hat because you want to be able to not be stressed out about your celebration, right? For instance, these are everyday celebrations. My son had his first big presentation at school school and he had to dress up and it was this big thing. He, of course, he's eight. So he didn't tell me about any of this stuff ahead of time, of course. So it's a last minute thing. So then when he came home, he from his day where he was presented and we rehearsed everything the night before and he was so worked up about it, but he came home to one of his favorite meals, confetti. And it was this celebration of his hard work. These are the things that are the everyday celebrations that that's for an example of what I mean by an everyday celebration, too. Hey, give me a quick way to make homemade confetti. Sometimes there's paper that you don't want to look at anymore. You know, so maybe let's say it's a bad report card. Maybe it's something that it's a letter that you didn't get into the school that you wanted, anything. And sometimes you want to cut up that piece of paper and you know what you need to celebrate? Celebrate that you are going to have a a success somewhere else and this is over. And so what you can do is take a handy dandy little hole punch and punch through that paper and instantly, and then you could add some colorful paper in there, of course, as well. And that is an instant homemade confetti and you're celebrating whatever it is that you need to either go forward with, or you can use colorful, colorful paper. Let's say if you got into the school, your child got into the college that they want, you can use your the school colors. So we're celebrating you know, failures being over or successes that are on their way. <laughs> you have two kids and you encourage them to make messes with food. That probably scares a lot of people, but tell me why it's important. You know, I think it's important for kids to have creative freedom. Let your kids make a mess. Okay, but here's the thing, to give you the reassurance of how to do it, I also teach you how to have mess success. And so what that means is, consolidated spaces, have it in a space where they're allowed to make mistakes and have freedom. So for instance, having food grade butcher paper on your table, and this creates a space, let's say you're making dinner, right? And you you want your kids to just be distracted, no devices, just put out some food grade butcher paper, put out some non-toxic crayons. And the reason I want it to be food grade is because then you can put snacks on there. My kids, no matter if I'm making dinner, they're hungry. Another thing when it comes to like making cookies, for instance, and I don't have this in the book, this is an exclusive for you. <laughs> so this is, um, you can get the trays that have just the edges on them that you're, you know, roasting vegetables in, things like that, and put sugar cookies in those. And that way, when you're doing sprinkles and things like that, this is even for adults, it's going to consolidate your mess. And then you don't have to worry about like, oh my gosh, the sprinkles have gone everywhere. And the other thing too, is when it comes to making a mess is letting your kids be there for the prep and understand that there is work that goes into your everyday celebrations, your weeknight meals. I have kids knives. I let them cut whatever it is that I need cut. And usually it's things that the kids knives will cut through. So things like fruit and vegetables and things of that nature, even peeling carrots, whatever it is, 
give them something to do. It's going to make them better people. So you'll really get more out of it if you just like let let go of the mess. Everyone loves taco night. And in your book, you talk about taco Tuesdays in your house. I need you to tell me about the waffle cone dessert tacos. They made my mouth water. So taco Tuesday, when it comes to dessert, I wanted a dessert taco. And so these tacos are really just making a waffle cone. And instead of rolling it, as you know, when you make your cones, they're so malleable when you first make them. So you roll it into a cone shape and let it harden. And it hardens so fast like that. You can actually create the same thing with a taco shape. And so what I do, I have those little metal holders that you put the tacos in. And so I just set them on there and they'll harden up really fast. The other thing you can do is actually take a, a rack that's in your oven or a cooling rack, as long as it's the ones with the, the big uh, spaces between, and you can hang it on there too. So if you don't have one of those taco holder things, that's totally fine. Once they harden, I actually take some ice cream. I'll put it, usually what I do, just because it makes it easier, I'll put it in a Ziploc bag or a piping bag. But if it's in a Ziploc bag, you just cut the tip off and you pipe it in the ice cream. And that way it fills up. Listen, I want every crevice full of ice cream. <laughs> this. And so that your ice cream to cone ratio is perfect. And then, um, and then what you can do is actually pop it back in the freezer and kind of let it set up. You can eat them right away too, but th this is a good make ahead. And then just because I can't leave well enough alone, I like to make um, a chocolate shell uh, for the outside. So the chocolate shell is simple. It's chocolate chips. And then you add some coconut oil to it. What happens is because of the coconut oil in there, when it hits the cold, it just hardens up. And then if you, it's like that when you crack it, it's going to create that. Oh, it's the best. It's like when you go to Dairy Queen and you know, you have that chocolate shell on the, that's what I'm talking about. So then what I like to do for ice cream tacos is dip I mean, you could dip as much of the taco in as you want, but I dip like the top part. It kind of seals in that ice cream. And then it's talked about like the perfect bite. It's the ice cream cone, the ice cream, and then that perfect crunchy chocolate. It is perfect. So if you are prepping any kind of summer treat, this is one that you can prep because once you dip it in the chocolate, you could put it back in the freezer and then you have those on hand. You do something in the book that's really brave for a cookbook author. You encourage folks to do takeout. Tell me about takeout Thursdays and why they're so important in your home. So they're so important to me because I'm a huge advocate for community. Um, so where I live, I, I have built relationships with the local chefs around town and the restaurateurs and all of that. And listen, I used to work in the restaurant industry. I came out to Los Angeles as an actress. So, so what that means is when you're an actor, you work in the restaurant industry. <laughs> Anybody will tell you. And I think, honestly, I think kids should all have experience in the restaurant industry. But, uh, but listen, because in the book, I, I also show for Takeout Thursday that you can elevate takeout food and give yourself a little bit of a break. I'm a Listen, I'm a working mom and some nights at food is my life. I live to create recipes, but you know what? Sometimes I need a break and we all need a break. And so in, in takeout Thursdays, I show how to elevate your takeout food. If it is a quick thing, but going back to the community aspect, I think it's important to support your community and pick one night a week where you go and support local chefs who have worked their whole lives to create and, you know, going through what we went through with, um, with COVID, the restaurant industry really got hit. And these people are working so hard. And I think it's so important to go out in your community 
and support the, you know, those who are really, really working hard. I also think that, you know, it's not just necessarily a restaurant for dinner. It's, go get a cup of coffee once a week at your local coffee shop or get, uh, you know, grab some muffins for your son's, you know, school or the teachers. And it, it's all about bringing people together. And that's what the whole, not the whole book is about, but also take out Thursday. I want to end with something that made me so happy in your book, cake for breakfast. <laughs> Tell me about the Italian breakfast cake. Right. Why not? You know, so when you go and I'm sure you know this too, you're a foodie. But you know, in Italy, a lot of times breakfast really is just something kind of simple and sweet and uh, it, like fast. Italians don't usually have big breakfasts. Um, and so this cake, it's something, you know, my grandpa used to have something like this for breakfast a lot too. He would do like toaster jam. Um, but this is called, the Italian way to say it is ciambella. And so it's an Italian cake that you will find anywhere you go in Italy just about. And it's it's sort of the Italian's answer to a coffee cake, right? So it's a very simple recipe and it, it, it's like a pound cake, uh, but it has those sort of um, underlying flavors of lemon, which is so Italian. I'm Sicilian. So it's like we put, we put lemon and citrus in just about everything. So I love it because it is easy to make. It freezes beautifully, as you know. I love me the freezer recipes. And it's that lovely little kiss of sweetness in the morning. And it's really just something that everybody can just take that little bite of with a cup of coffee. And it's just, for me, exactly what I love to have. Maria Provenzano, author of the new book, Everyday Celebrations from Scratch. Thank you for spending some time and sharing some of your expertise with us. Thank you for having me. I love your podcast and I'm listening to it on the regular. So I appreciate that you took the time today to talk to me. Okay, Bruce, uh, that was great. And really, honestly, her philosophy, Maria's philosophy oh, is- keep a fridge full of bubbles? So close to our That's own. like, I'm so living with that from Bruce, now on. Bruce and I always say that if we had to pick one <laughs> wine in the whole world that we would drink, it would be champagne. But of, as she said, it doesn't have to no, be champagne. No, it's not because it we're be... gay. <laughs> By the way, just uh, let me add here. It's not because we're gay. It's because we champagne is fabulous. We have tastes. It's because we have to. And again, it doesn't have to be champagne. It could be cob. It could be Prosecco. You don't have to spend $50 a bottle no. to have a celebration. You know what? I used to say that the best answer for a breakup before I met Bruce and we got married and all that happened, the best answer to a breakup was a bottle of of New York State bubbling wine. <laughs> I swear Taylor Cold Duck. No, mm. it wasn't Cold Duck, but it was Taylor sparkling bubble wine. Hey, I was in my 20s and a hot bath. And I would get in a hot bath So you could drown yourself <laughs> by drinking that swill. <laughs> a bottle of Taylor. Oh. Leave me alone. It's how I dealt with breakups. You well, know? And I dealt with torture champagne truffles. Uh, well, so. Whatever. <laughs> whatever. I, I'm normal and you're, you're an uber gay. Okay. Our last segment, segment four, traditionally, what's making us happy in food this week? And I'm going to go first. Okay. What's making me happy in food this week is a gin from Stockholm. Just it, this week? Oh, uh-huh, <laughs> no, for a lot of weeks. There is this distillery in Stockholm, and I, listen, I don't speak sp- Swedish at all, but it looks to me, and I'm going to pronounce it e- in German, it's Stockholm's Brennerei, but it can't be Brennerei. So I don't know exactly how you say B-R-A with an 
two dots over it, an umlaut over it, N-N-E-R-I in Swedish, but whatever. Stockholm Distillery, Stockholm Gin, is fabulous. Their dry gin, get this, is made with heather and rosemary and elderflower, and it is so aromatic. It smells like the Scottish Highlands with Mm. the heather in it. And they also make a pink gin with rhubarb and elderflower. It is utterly irresistible. I love the Stockholm Distilleries gin so much. You can find it all over the place. I get mine, and no, I'm not supported by them. I get mine at Total Wine. I'm sure that you can find it all over North America. Do check out the gins from Stockholm Distillery. I guess we're going international because you went to Scandinavia. I did. What's making me happy is coming out of Hong Kong. It's a dim sum dumpling that I made last week for dinner for friends. And I'm sure I'm not pronouncing it with the right tones, but Hansui Gok. It's H-A-M-S-U-I-G-O-K. And it is a glutinous rice flour dough filled with two kinds of pork. There's Chinese roast pork, there's ground pork belly, there's oyster sauce, there's soy sauce, there's scallions. I put yellow chives in it, which is totally not traditional. And then you wrap this gelatinousy, gooey, sticky dough, which is a pain in the butt to make, and you got to knead lard into it, and you need a little sugar into it. Crazy. And then you deep fry them. And let me tell you, the best thing I have made in a very long time. I think my favorite thing is Bruce watched a bunch of YouTube videos of people making these Hansui Gok. I don't even know how to say it. <laughs> um, these dumplings. And even the Chinese chefs on YouTube who were making were saying, oh, only grandmothers make this. Like, nobody makes this. They don't this even is... make them in dim sum <laughs> restaurants anymore because they're too labor intensive. <laughs> so, <laughs> you, had, you had to, like, make one dough, make a second dough, knead the doughs together, knead a part of one dough into one dough, knead lard And then you cook it. 40 grams of the dough, boil it, then knead the boiled dough back into the other Insane. part of the dough. <laughs> and then deep fry the whole thing. If you go to a dim sum parlor, ask them if they have this han shui gok these fried sticky rice dough dumplings and they're not sweet they're even no. though there's a little sweetness no, in no, the dough they're no, no. filled with a savory pork filling we poured chili oil on it which mm. i'm sure is wrong oh no totally in, wrong yes in but cantonese food yes, no, totally no wrong oil. but so we did and we poured bruce's aromatic chili oil mm. on it by the way if you want to see a recipe for that aromatic chili oil check out our youtube channel cooking with bruce and mark and you can watch bruce make that aromatic chili oil it is spectacular and something that you would keep in your fridge for a year as we do and enjoy every minute of it hey what's making you happy in food this week go to our facebook group cooking with bruce and mark and uh leave a post leave a picture just let's i want to know what's making you happy in food this week and if it sounds really good maybe i'll try it and thank you for listening this is our episode cooking with bruce and mark we talked about what it takes to eat well rurally we talked to maria provenzano we know you're going to get multiple timers now and we're all going to share what's making us happy in food excellent so we will see you up next week for another episode of cooking with bruce and mark